Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 1, the good doctor writes, Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. I'm a big fan of the History Channel and the Discovery Channel. I'm constantly intrigued by discoveries. What is man's greatest discovery? It all depends on who you ask. Stephen Hawking might say that that discovery has yet to be made because he thinks he's going to make the discovery of the theory of everything. Other scientists might point to the theory of evolution, how mud becomes man. Ask the astronomer, ask the biologist, ask the physicist, ask the politician. The politician may, may say, why the greatest discovery is debt, how we can charge you and make people pay later. <laughs> ask the physician, ask the atheist, Ask the skeptic, ask the movie mogul, ask the mathematician, numbers, or more specifically the concept of zero, maybe DNA, maybe the human genome. What would you offer as the greatest discovery? Maybe you might ask a different question. In order to come up with the answer to the greatest discovery, we have to ask a different question. What is the greatest problem that human beings face? What is our most perplexing question? Why are we here? Or if you're from the Far East, are we really here? In a college classroom, uh, someone asked his professor that. He said, how do I know I am who I say that I am? And the professor said, who should I ask? Who shall I say is asking? <laughs> Why must we die? What follows death? Extinction? Survival? In this passage, an angel invites the visitors of that first Resurrection Sunday to consider the question from verse 5, why are you looking for the living among the dead? In Luke 24, the good doctor, a credible scientist, a competent historian, records the first appearance of Jesus from the dead. 
The chapter begins with the women carrying the spices to anoint the body of Jesus in verse 1. And when the women arrive, they find an open tomb and an empty tomb in verses 2 and 3. And they encounter the angels beside the tomb in verses 4 through 8. In brief, Luke reminds us of the angel's radiance in verse 4, their reassurance in verse 5, and then a reminder in verses 6 through 8. In verse 1, we see, now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. All four gospels testify that Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday morning before dawn. And this was very significant for the early believers in the lordship of Jesus Christ because they came to commemorate that day and celebrate that day. The text says, very early in the morning, the night still lingered. The darkness, thick and black with sorrow and heavy grief still clung to the hearts of the women who made the journey that morning. Their eyes were swollen from persistent tears and the women came to the tomb bringing spices. And there's a reason why they brought spices, because the spices were meant to mask the foul stench of decaying flesh. Because in their world, when people died, they stayed dead. They grew up in a world where in every single generation, People who died, they remained deaf. And the circumstances of Jesus' death was such that they had to get him down from the cross. They had to wrap him quickly. They had to entomb him quickly because the Passover was coming and they had to observe the Passover. And these were observant Jews and they were willing to neglect the one that they loved and purchase the spices Saturday night after the sun had went down and they prepared them and they prepared them for good reason because they believed that he was really dead. The spices were costly and they were given in love. This morning I was thinking of my, my grandma and she said, there are three kinds of givers. My granny, by the way, on my mother's side was from Mississippi. And she had that Mississippi drawl. She'd say, there are three kinds of givers, the flint, the sponge, and the honeycomb. She said, to get anything out of the flint, you have to hammer it. And then you only get sparks and, and chips. She said, to get water out of a sponge, you got to squeeze it. And the more pressure you use, the more you get. But she said, but the honeycomb, it just flows. It just overflows with sweetness. My granny was raised in the 20s and 30s. And when she would tuck me into bed, she would sing the song, I love you. 
a bushel and a peck. A bushel and a peck and a hug around the neck. She was sugar and spice. I need you to understand something. The women that morning didn't come expecting a risen savior. It was too much to hope for. Devils in hell tremble at the majesty and the authority of Jesus and spirits in prison are aware that Jesus has risen from the dead, but not these women and not at that moment. What did you expect to find on Resurrection Sunday? What did you expect when you came to church this morning? Were you expecting beautiful worship? Were you expecting enthusiastic praise? Were you expecting a religious tradition? Or was there something inside of your heart that wondered even just for a brief moment, even for one surprising second that you might be able to find someone who's alive? I don't want to live in a world where people don't come back to life. And Jesus is going to demonstrate once and for all that we live in a world where the dead will rise. And look what it says in verse 2. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. In Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28, it records an earthquake, an angel descending from heaven and rolling back the stone. But there are people who quite literally can't bring themselves to believe that. Well, who, what are our other options? The Roman soldiers removed the stone? Why would the might of Rome roll back a stone in order to feed the frenzy of messianic fervor? I don't think the Roman soldiers would do it. Do you? Well, who, who are our other options? Um, the disciples themselves, do you think they overpowered the Roman soldiers and then rolled back the stone? Does that make sense to you? How about the religious leaders? Are they going to roll back the stone? The Roman soldiers don't want to see that stone removed. The religious leaders don't want to see that stone removed. The disciples are too afraid to remove the stone. In order for the stone to, to be removed, it's going to take a supernatural act from a supernatural source. And the stone becomes a type and a picture of your heart. A heart that believes that once a person's dead, they're dead and they can't come back to life. Matthew's gospel records that the Romans guard shook for fear and terror. And I've always found that interesting because the guards on the outside are shaking and it says they became like dead men. Isn't that interesting? On that first Sunday morning, the living people acted like dead people. And then the one person who was dead comes back to life. And the women are perplexed by this strange event. Who rolled away the stone? You'll remember in John 11, Jesus orders the stone rolled away to release his friend Lazarus, but an angel rolls away this stone, not to release Jesus, but to allow the witnesses of the resurrection to see the empty tomb. 
Would it shock you and surprise you that a supernatural source might be tugging at the heaviness inside of your heart of unbelief and skepticism, pushing, pushing at a stone that doesn't belong there? And look what it says in verse 3. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. This was my father's favorite Bible verse, by the way. My father would say, friends help you move. Good friends help you move the body. I go, dad, what do you mean? You know, no body, no crime. My father was hilarious. He would watch CSI. And he would laugh as they would uncover the body. And he would say, hey, do you know how difficult it is to trace DNA in an alligator's intestines? <laughs> I go, Dad, how do, you, how do you know that? <laughs> Jesus was in the tomb. In death. In Mark 16, 6, it says, see the place where they laid him. So what does an empty tomb have to say? It tells us that scripture is fulfilled in 1 Corinthians 15, that sin has an answer, that Satan is vanquished, that salvation is proclaimed, that sanctification is assured, that sorrow is assuaged or comforted, and strength is commanded. And my father would say, you get all of that out of that one verse? And I would say, Dad, and you don't? And look at verse 4. It says, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this. That behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Who were these two men? Well, we have every reason to believe that they were angels. Luke describes their clothes as shining garments. But by the way, the word translated shining is the participle of the verb, astrapto. Only here and in chapter 17, verse 24, it's from a noun in the Greek language, astrape. It, it was the word in the Greek language that meant lightning that came down from heaven. And if you've ever seen a lightning strike and how it fills up the air with electricity and energy, the idea is that the angel's garments are like lightning, they are glowing. In Matthew, Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, verse 3, it says, His countenance was like lightning and his clothing as white as snow. Our friends on the History Channel who suggest that these are aliens from another planet or extraterrestrial visitors, they offer no explanation for the rest of the gospel or the rest of the story. The people who believe all history and archaeology and human monuments must be seen through the lens of extraterrestrial visitations would proudly answer, I know what the greatest discovery is. We're not alone. But really, is that the meaning of this text? I don't think so. It says in verse 5, then as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, 
why do you seek the living among the dead? In the presence of these angels, the women bow in terror and in fear to the earth. This is not normal. There's a hint of rebuke in the angel's question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? The simple question fairly shouts the resurrection. Jesus is alive, but the question itself is both reassuring and disturbing. Remember that the women were frail and powerless. They had watched Jesus die. They watched as soldiers took him and nailed him to the cross. They were powerless to prevent his death. The reason why all of this becomes important is because it's what in law enforcement goes to a person's frame of mind. In other words, on that day, what was the frame of mind of the people who were showing up on that first morning? Did they really think that they were going to fabricate a story about a dead man coming to life? That can't be. What was their frame of mind? Their frame of mind is that Jesus is dead. Jesus is dead. They've purchased spices for a dead Jesus. They've come to anoint a dead man. They're living in a world where dead people don't come back to life. The reason why this is such an important thing is maybe that's the world that you're living in. You're living in a world where the real world, as you call it, the one of sorrow and the one of pain and the one of disappointment and the one of excuse and the one of dread and the one of fear. But the Bible offers a whole new world in a whole different circumstance. You see, it isn't just a clever story that Jesus is not dead, that the tomb couldn't hold him. But this is precisely where the skeptic and the unbeliever look for Jesus. They look for Jesus in the dead. They have moral objections. They have psychological objections. They have historical objections. They have intellectual objections. Woody Allen said, I, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I, I want to achieve immortality by not dying. Who can blame him? Paul wrote, for we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we won't take anything out of it. It says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, prepare to be disappointed. God in Genesis says, for dust you are, and to dust you will return, it says in Genesis 3.19. And the sad search of the dead yields the same sad news. The dead do not come back to life unless you believe the Bible. Unless you believe the resurrection. The Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints in Psalm 116. A promise that one day the last enemy will be destroyed in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. And note what the angel says in verse 6. He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in the Galilee. Literally, the text reads, 
has been raised. The verb used in has risen is aorist, passive. It implies that it's God who did the raising. It's God who intervened in human history. It's God who brought Jesus back to life. The Bible says that the father raised him from the dead. And the Bible says that Jesus raised himself from the dead. And the Bible says that the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. So who raised him from the dead? Yeah, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. The word remember, by the way, isn't just simply a call to remember. There's a hint of rebuke. Jesus is alive in spite of death. Jesus is alive because he prophesied that he would come back to life. It says the son of man in verse seven must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise again, three separate occasions as Jesus makes his way towards Jerusalem. He reminds his friends and disciples, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be incarcerated. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to come back to life. And they, with eyes open and jaws dropped, didn't know what to think because in their world, dead people don't come back to life. But Jesus lives just like he said he would, the angel said. And the first followers of Jesus either ignored what he said, spiritualized what he said, or simply refused to believe what he said. Michael Green writes, quote, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there's no Christianity at all. Once you disprove it, you've disproved Christianity. C.S. Lewis wrote, if this thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth. Michael Ramsey says it with an economy of words, no resurrection, no Christianity. And so we see the first testimony in verse 9. Look what it says. And they returned from the sepulcher and they told all these things unto the eleven and to all the rest. The ladies pack up, they go back, they tell, look what it says, the eleven. Why the eleven? Because Judas isn't there. And all the rest, who are all the rest? This, this is the sum and the substance of the disciples and the followers who continue to identify with Jesus even after his death. And the ladies recount the story. And the disciples hear the story. Now remember, the disciples have the benefit of three years of ministry with Jesus. They have the benefit of hearing from the very lips of the Savior the prophecies concerning his death and resurrection. They have the benefit of being eyewitnesses to his arrest and his crucifixion and his death. They have the benefit of being there at the very moment, the very time, the very place, just like you got up this morning and some of you took a shower and you know who you are. And some of you didn't, and you know who you are, and so does the person next to you. 
But all they had to do was take a very short journey and see an empty tomb. They had the benefit of being there at that very moment. They had the the benefit of hearing the women's testimony, the statement of the angels, the supernatural significance of of the Roman soldiers being gone and the stone being rolled away from Mary, the mother of Jesus, from Mary Magdalene and the other women and they're trying to take it all in. What are you saying? Angels, angels in the master's tomb. I can't remember hardly anything that my grandfather or my father spoke to me before the age of four. I'm pretty certain that they spoke to me, but I don't remember a single thing that they said. But I do remember the words of my mother and I do remember the words of my grandmother. My granny would say, nothing's settled till it's settled right. My granny would say, it's bad to have an empty purse, but it's even worse to have an empty head. (laughs) Scholars suggest that the testimony of the women wouldn't have been viewed as credible. They also point to the fact that if you were going to make up a story like this from the first century, if you were going to fabricate a death and a resurrection, they wouldn't have fabricated a story where women are the first responders to an empty tomb and the women are the first to communicate the reality of an empty tomb. My question to you, are the disciples convinced? No. See, I need you to understand something. The disciples remain unconvinced. What a stubborn unbelief. I want you to just take a quick peek at verse 11. Look down at verse 11 where it says, And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. The NIV translates this, And they did not believe the women because their words seemed like nonsense. That's what it says in the NIV. Or idle talk. Now think about these poor men. How little ability they have to grasp the promise of God, the divine scheme of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. How little they understood about God's love and God's promise. How theologically cool to speculate and cogitate that a Jesus might return in some general future resurrection, but to have an actual, literal, physical resurrection so soon and in particular in exactly the way that he said it just seemed like nonsense the disciples unbelief seems so modern so skeptical so sophisticated at this point in the narrative any liberal seminary in America would gladly hire them and give them tenor to be professors of theology Oh, you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead? Oh, good for you. You can come and work for us.
What do you say to your unbelieving spouse? What do you say to your unbelieving children? What do you say to your unbelieving friends? What do you say to your unbelieving neighbors? What do you say to an unbelieving culture when they ask about the resurrection? And they reply, why, that's nonsense. What do you say to them? With a great big smile, you open up your Bible to Luke chapter 24. You point to verse 9, 10, and 11, and you say, you're in the Bible. (laughs) What do you mean I'm in the Bible? Well, you're in exactly the same position that Peter, James, and John, and all of the other disciples found themselves on Easter morning. They're only a few, they're only a few short verses away from a personal encounter with the Lord Jesus. The first disciples of Jesus, they woke up on Sunday morning. They found an empty tomb. They were only a short distance away. The first disciples had the benefit of close companionship with Jesus for three years. The repeated prediction of his death, arrest, and resurrection. They didn't believe him. The first disciples heard the message of the angel, and they didn't believe them. They heard the explanation of the women, and they didn't believe them. They saw the stone rolled away and they didn't believe them. They saw an empty tomb and didn't believe it. They remained unconvinced. Are you willing to abandon your unbelief and embrace Jesus? How are we to think about that kind of unbelief? R.C. Sproul writes, quote, It's not enough to say that the natural man views God as an enemy. We must be more precise. God is our mortal enemy. He represents the highest possible threat to our sinful desires. His repugnance to us is absolute, knowing no lesser degrees, unquote. There's a reason. There's a reason why people hold so doggedly and determinedly to their unbelief. It's because they don't want to let their sin go. A preacher and an unconverted manufacturer of soaps met on the street and sneering the soap maker said, the gospel you preach can't be very good for there's still a lot of wicked people, he said. And the preacher was silent until they passed a child playing in a pile of mud making mud pies. And the young child was smeared from head to toe with dirt. And pointing to the youngster, the preacher said, George, your product can't be all that effective because there's still a lot of filth in this world. Oh, but the soap cleaner said, the soap has to be applied. The preacher smiled and said, precisely. Phillips Brooks was once asked, is it necessary to have a personal experience of Christ to be a Christian? And the New England preacher paused and he said, my friend, a personal experience of Christ is Christianity. 
What will eventually convince the apostles that Jesus has risen from the dead? It's a personal experience and a personal appearance. And once convinced, the apostles will never look back and they will never turn back. John Stott wrote, quote, perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of the resurrection, unquote. It turns out that the greatest discovery is wrapped in swaddling clothes at his birth and wrapped in grave linens at his death. It turns out that the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus places humanity on a voyage and a journey and an answer to the most important questions that could ever be asked. Why am I here? Where am I going? Where will all of this lead? The great Princeton theologian B.B. Warfield wrote, quote, Christ himself deliberately stakes his whole claim to the credit of men upon his resurrection. When asked for a sign, he points to this sign as the single and sufficient credential. How do we know you are who you say you are? Kill me and I'm going to come back to life. No. No. Bishop John Tanner used to test chaplains by saying, if I have two minutes to live, how would you tell me to get to heaven? And if they couldn't tell him in two minutes, he knew that they couldn't tell him in two hours. Years ago, Billy Graham was preaching in Scotland and some reporters were making fun of what they call preacher Graham. An older man replied, I didn't know exactly what he's saying, but he's saying that we're all sinners. It's not hard to believe that. And he's saying that Christ died for us. And then that statement which he voiced pricked his heart. And he realized that he needed Christ as his savior. And he accepted him. So what is man's greatest discovery? The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Salvation is full. Faith isn't simply believing the unbelievable. Faith is risking everything on the unspeakable goodness of God. That Jesus is alive. And that you can see him with the eye of faith. And you can hear him with the eye of love. And, you, and be satisfied with him. And you can see him with the eye of hope. And be filled with the assurance that neither sin or death will ever separate you from the love of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
What world are you living in? Is it a world where the people that you know and the people that you love, they die and they never come back to life? Or is it a world where Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he or she were dead, yet shall they live. And whoever believes in me will never die. This is why we say what we say. And this is why we do what we do. So what's the greatest discovery? That your heart remains empty? Or that your heart remains full? The cross is empty. The tomb is empty. Salvation is full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a glorious, glorious thing that we have. A real Savior who's really come back to life. And Heavenly Father, for the person who lives in a perpetual state of skepticism, of torment, of unbelief, Lord, for the person who woke up the same way this morning that they wake up every morning, in a world where people who die stay dead. Lord, I pray that you would extend an invitation to them, that their hearts could be filled with joy, that they could experience love and grace and forgiveness and hope. Lord, I pray for that person who's asking the ever-present question, is it even possible? Is it even possible that Jesus is alive and that Jesus could save someone like me and forgive someone like me and give someone like me hope and a future? And Heavenly Father, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak to them and that you would give them the answer that you are alive and that you're willing to forgive them and that you're willing to reconcile them to themselves, to yourself. And Heavenly Father, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer. Heavenly Father, is it true? Is the tomb empty? Did Jesus come back to life? Can he forgive someone like me? Can he save someone like me? Can he provide a future for someone like me? Lord, I pray that you would speak to them and tell them the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.